let us now read to, together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in the Lord's Days 36 and 37, both of which deal with the third commandment. There we find God's word summarized as follows. What is required in the third commandment? We are not to blaspheme or to abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence, so that we may rightly confess him call upon him and praise him in all our words and works. Is the blaspheming of God's name by swearing and cursing such a grievous sin that God is angry also with those who do not prevent and forbid it as much as they can? Certainly, for no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than the blaspheming of his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. But may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner, yes, when the government demands it of its subjects, or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints or other creatures no, a lawful oath is a calling upon God, who alone knows the heart to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 15, which deals with how we should use our tongues and also the keeping of our oaths. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, just a moment ago we baptized Joshua Brian Dahan in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the name of the triune God. Now his name is, as it were, on his forehead. And that is what happened to each and every one of us when we were baptized as well. We became carriers of God's name. What does that mean? It's a question that we have to ask in connection with the third commandment, which tells us that we shall not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What then do we do with that name? For as is clear from the commandment and the way it is summarized in the catechism, God's name is very dear to him. His name refers to everything he stands for. So he guards his name very jealously. When we are baptized in his name, then he reminds us of the value of his name. He says to us, 
says to Joshua, you are now a carrier of my name. And don't you forget it. For it is a privilege. It is a privilege, a great privilege to be called by my name. And therefore, parents have to promise to teach their children the significance of that name. To know what it means that God has stamped his name upon them. Reminds you and me of that in numerous ways as well. We just confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We confess that he is the maker of heaven and earth. That's what his name stands for. He is the almighty God, and he is very powerful. There is no power greater than his. All power is derived from him, even. And therefore, we had better not mess around with that name. That's what I want to preach to you about this afternoon. I've summarized the message as follows. God commands us not to use his name in vain. He teaches us about, in the first place, the reverent use of it. Secondly, the blasphemous abuse of it. And finally, the lawful use of it. First then, how we must use God's name in a reverent way. The Lord tells us that we may indeed use his name. In the Bible, he even commands us to call upon his name. But why? What good does that do that? There are lots of people who don't call upon his name, who don't pray, and who do well in life. Sometimes even better than people who do pray. We also saw that this morning. And so let's see what God says about all that in the Bible. Why must we call upon his name? And then first we have to look at the context in which this is given. For you cannot divorce the third commandment, not to use God's name in vain, apart from the other commandments, especially the introduction to the commandments. In the introduction to the Ten Commandments, God says first, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And with these words, we are introduced to whom we are dealing with. We have to deal here with the Almighty God who is able to deliver his people from their enemies through very miraculous means. For what did he do when he led them out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery? Well, he sent plagues upon the Egyptians. And then he led his people through the Red Sea on dry land while Pharaoh and his army, his whole army, drowned. That's how he deals with his own people, with those who have the stamp of his name upon them. He delivers them from evil. Not always in the way that we expect, but we can trust that God delivers us. And that's also how he deals with those who do not have his name stamped upon them, like the Egyptians. They saw his miracles. They experienced the plagues that he sent upon them, but they did not, they did not repent. And so they, they pursued God's people nevertheless. And God destroyed them. The third commandment is very closely related to the first and second commandments. For in those commandments we are told whom we must worship. 
and how we must worship. And now in the third commandment, we see why. It's because of his name. His name is something to be reckoned with. He is not a god like the gods the heathen nations worship. Those gods are nothing more than ridiculous man-made objects. Throughout his word, he shows to his people how absurd it is to worship those gods. For they have no power. Only God has power. His greatness can especially be seen from Psalm 99, which we read together and from which we sang a few stanzas. That psalm teaches us that not only does God have all of creation in his hands, but also that he is a God who rules wisely and justly. There is no arbitrariness or inconsistency in him. In other words, he doesn't deal willy-nilly. He is a God of justice. He's also a God who is full of compassion, who forgives all those who call upon him. And that's a wonderful thing to know all these things. Remind us when we hear his name. And in verse 3, the psalmist calls upon all the peoples to praise his name. Why? Because his name is awesome and great. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel are used as examples of men who call upon that great name and also whose sins are forgiven. That's specifically mentioned in this psalm. That's the reason that's also given for his great name. And it also says there that they're the ones who keep his statutes. In other words, it is their desire to keep the law. Not that they actually kept it, for they were sinful men. But God did not hold it against them because they sought their salvation from God. As the psalmist reminds us, his name is awesome. Other translations state that his name is terrible. What does that mean? What does it mean that his name is terrible? In English, the word terrible has a negative connotation. It doesn't have a nice ring to it. Well, from the original language, we know that it means that his name is to be feared. And that is virtually synonymous with worshiping him. When you fear God's name, you are fully aware not only of the great things that he can do for you, but also that you are aware of the judgment that he can execute on you if you do not acknowledge his great name through your words and deeds. And that's why the psalmist begins this psalm by stating, The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. We, as God's own people, know that we can call upon God with confidence. We do not have to be afraid. For we know that if we acknowledge his existence through the things we say and do, that then God's face will also shine upon us. In other words, he will look upon us favorably. And we may know that through his living word. That is why it is also important to constantly place ourselves on the preaching of God's word every Sunday. For the Lord reveals himself to us through his word and through an explanation of his word. It's important for us to realize that. For in revealing his name to us, he also opens himself up to us. He makes himself accessible to us. If you know the prime minister by name, and have a relationship with him personally, then you also have access to him. Knowing him 
personally opens all kinds of doors for you. Well, that's also the way it is with God. When we are baptized in his name, then he declares to us that he knows us and we can know him and that we have a special relationship with him. And so what a privilege it is to be members of the household of God. How privileged also the Dahans are that they may know their son also belongs to God's household. What an honor to be called by God's name. What an honor to be baptized in his name. For now, God says that we may have continual access to him. As a member of God's church, we are under the instruction of his word. And now we may know things that are hidden from the world, even from the so-called wise men of this age, for he is a stranger to them. By telling us his name, he brings himself close to us. He does that in such a way that we no longer feel any distance between God and us, even though God is in heaven and we are on earth. And there seems to be a, a tremendous chasm between him and us. But he bridges that gap through his presence in the worship service. He tells us how we have access to him, namely through his son, Jesus Christ, who was born 2,000 years ago in the flesh. And through him, we have an indestructible bond with God. The greatest way that God has revealed himself to us is through his son. Christ said at one time, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And it's through the Father and the Son that we receive the Spirit. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. 1 Corinthians 2. For, the Apostle continues in verse 16, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Because of God's word, we are that close to him. We, brothers and sisters, have been given the mind of Christ because he makes us one with him. And he does that also through baptism. His Holy Spirit within us, because of the words that he has spoken to us and because of the promises that he made to us, make us one with him through the promises that he realizes through Jesus Christ. Because of that relationship, because of that covenant relationship, we may have life and we may have eternal life. As the Christmas song so beautifully states, man may live forevermore because of Christmas Day. And therefore, we may never take the revelation of God's name to us for granted. We may not abuse his name. We come to the second point. The third commandment tells us not to misuse his name or to use it in vain, as other translations have it. What does that mean? The phrase in vain is taken from a Hebrew root and in essence means emptiness. It describes an attitude in which God is treated as unreal, in which his name is used without a true awareness 
or respect for all that his name represents. The world around us misuses the name of the Lord Jesus in many ways. They take his name on their lips without wanting to be confronted with the true content of that name. They rob the name of the Lord Jesus of its meaningful content. How that must anger the Lord to hear his name so trivialized in this world bereft of spiritual values. But what do the scriptures show us? Well, the Lord shows us in his word that the name of the Lord Jesus is a name above all others. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And he came to deal with sin. He came to rescue us. He came to deal with those who truly want to be confronted with their sin. He came to save those who are truly sorry for the way that they have wronged God through their own sins and shortcomings and through their own weaknesses and how they have sinned against others. But that is exactly the reason why most people do not want to be confronted with that great and awesome name. For they don't want to deal with their own sinfulness. More and more we see a world that hardens itself in sin. And more and more we live in a world where God's name is used with impunity. Just look at the TV programs and listen to the radio programs and the books and the various websites. There's hardly any programs on TV or books or movies or anything that you can find in the media which in one way or the other do not relish in the sinfulness of man. But let's stay close to home. You and I are guilty as well. We too are guilty of profaning God's name. And we do that in ways that we may not even realize. And so we have to be on our guard. We abuse God's name, for example, when we further our own causes. Having God's name on our foreheads means that our identity is tied up with him, with the almighty creator. And so our cause always has to be God's cause. How often aren't we worried about our own reputation? How often and in how many ways are we not self-promoting? We do things and we buy things and we say things in order to make ourselves look good. We try in numerous ways to embellish our own image in the eyes of others. We want a prestigious job or a beautiful car or a nice house so that others can look up to us. We do these things not in the first place so that we can serve God with them, but so that we can serve ourselves with them. And in that way, we already blaspheme God's name. And so we sin against him all the time. And I can go on and on about the way that we abuse God's name. We're all guilty. And we all need to be forgiven. We all need the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us. And we need God's Holy Spirit to cleanse us and to renew us and to make us realize once again how great God's name is and how important it is that we hold his name high in the things we do and say. And we have to do that especially in the public sphere when lawfully called upon to do so. That's the third point. 
Brothers and sisters, the world is watching us. They know the claims that we make. Namely, that we are representatives of the truth. That's what it means. You're a member of the church, doesn't it? And so we also have to show that we are indeed people who love the truth. We have to do that also in the court of law. And we're asked to swear in God's name. As a matter of fact, that's why Lord's Day 37 was added, to deal specifically with the swearing of an oath. It was added for historical reasons, as a defense against the Anabaptists, also against the Roman Catholics. But it is not necessary to deal with that heresy once again. But what we have to look at, how the swearing of an oath applies to us as Christians. How do we conduct ourselves in the public sphere? Why was the swearing of an oath necessary in the first place? Well, it was necessary because we are an unreliable people. David tells us the horrible truth about ourselves in Psalm 14, verse 3. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. All men are corrupt and unreliable by nature. Jeremiah says the same thing in chapter 17, verse 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We can see the bitter truth of those statements every day in our own lives and all around us. We all know that by nature man is not trustworthy. You cannot rely on him. We always embellish the truth or withhold certain truths in order to serve our own cause. And we make promises even when we have no intention of keeping those promises. We only make them in order to get someone off our backs or to line our own pockets. By nature, we are an unreliable people unless we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, unless we realize who we are and who we claim to be. And so we have to call upon God's name as his witness in every word we utter. As Paul says in Romans 3 verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. God himself is true when he makes promises to us. And so we have to do the same. Think of Deuteronomy 6 verse 13 where he commands his people, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. And Deuteronomy 10 verse 20, fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. And that's also what the Old Testament believer did when required. For example, Laban, Jacob's future father-in-law, said to Jacob, may the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. And then we read further in Genesis 31. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father, Isaac. The word fear here is capitalized because it refers to God himself as the only place where God is given that specific name, fear. We see the same thing in the New Testament. In Romans 1, verse 9, Paul writes to the congregation, God whom I serve with my whole heart, 
in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you. He swears by his name. God is his witness. He uses him as a witness to the truth. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself did not object to being put under an oath either. At the time of his trial, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then the Lord Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. Matthew 26. Christ did not object to being put under the oath. He did not because he knew that God alone is trustworthy and not man. When God himself swears an oath, then he does that in his own name. That's also what the author of the letter to the Hebrews said in chapter 6, verse 18, which we read. He wrote, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. And then he says further in verse 18, God this, this, did this so that by the unchangeable, by two unchangeable things, God's word and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope when God swears by his name, he does that for our encouragement. For only God is reliable. His word is reliable. His promises are reliable. And therefore we have to trust in him. Does that mean that we must always swear an oath in order to show that we are telling the truth? No, the Lord Jesus even said this in Matthew 5, as we also read together, that we should not swear at all. Why did he say that? Well, the Pharisees and many other people during those days swore by all kinds of things. Some things, according to them, were more reliable than others. And so, whenever they swore by those things, that also determined to what extent they should keep their promises. And therefore, the Lord Jesus says to them in the Sermon of the Mount, let your yes be yes and your no, no. You see, brothers and sisters, you have God's name on your forehead. And then you always have to reflect your Father in heaven and be truthful. A man is supposed to be an image bearer of God. He is to mirror God in all he does and in all he says. And that's especially the way it is with the truth. We have to be people of the word, of God's word. Ultimately, every word we utter is the swearing of an oath. But what is the truth that brings us back to the beginning of our sermon? The truth exists only in a relationship. Truth functions in a relationship of love, a love for God and a love for our fellow man. A little while ago, God showed his love to Joshua Dahan when he made his promises to him. He showed his love in the relationship that he established with him, and he showed that also to his parents and also to his grandparents. We can rely on God. When he says that he will be with us always, then we can also trust in that. It is because of God's name that we can trust in that. And therefore, we never have to fear. God has established a relationship with us. And that relationship functions 
in connection with one another. That doesn't mean that you always have to tell everybody exactly what you think as if that is the truth. The truth to us is not always clear. But it does mean that you want to to serve the Lord your God and that you want to be faithful to the promises that you make to him and to others. That is why the Catechism speaks about the maintenance of fidelity and truth. The word fidelity, that's an old-fashioned word for faithfulness. In formal occasions in the church, we do not have to specifically swear by God's name. Brian and Julina, the hand, did not do that either. But they did say yes to God's promises, and they did say yes to the responsibilities that God has put upon them because of their child. And it is as good as swearing an oath. God's name is great. It is wonderful. We may be carriers of God's name. What a privilege that is, but also what a responsibility that gives us. And so, brothers and sisters, let us show ourselves to be children of God, children of the truth in the way we conduct ourselves. Let us do that further in this week and also all the days of our lives. Amen.